Good evening, and welcome to the Perpetual Notion Machine on WORT 89.9 FM, community-supported radio in Madison, Wisconsin. I'm Katherine Garvins, and I'll be your host for this evening. Tonight, we'll learn about the Driftless Area in southwest Wisconsin and about the organizations and people devoted to preserving the land within it. I pick up this story in December of 2022. I'm walking down a snowy woodland trail with Zach Pacana. He's the land management specialist for the Driftless Area Land Conservancy, a land trust based in Dodgeville, devoted to the preservation and stewardship of this geologically unique landscape. Zach and I are on our way to a work site with a group of volunteers who have been working on habitat restoration taking place at Wild Oaks Preserve, 310 acres of diverse landscape gifted to the Conservancy in 2020. As we walk, Zach talks about what we're seeing and the goals for the project. Um, there's a lot of almost art that goes into conservation and managing these natural areas. You have to really analyze what you have and through the Driftless region you have all of these small microhabitats and climates so the more that you spend the more time that you spend in one chunk of land the more intimate you become with it you start to recognize the little patterns you know um, seasonal bloom times and stuff like that that might just be a little bit different than it is half an hour down the road and that kind of gives you a good idea of um, how to do how to take that like designer uh, land management approach to things and really tweak things in a way where they're functioning correctly. Zach says that one of the things they're working toward is functional ecology. In other words, they want to restore these systems so they act like they did 100 years ago. And even if true restoration is impossible, we still want them to be a functioning habitat. So um, invasive species are, you know, famous for disrupting that natural kind of progression of things. You know, if you look around at the area right now, um, you can see all of these great big mature oak trees that are almost imprisoned by these younger, uh, shrubbier, invasive species and uh, kind of junky, unwanted trees yeah. like uh, the quick-growing ones like the walnuts and the locusts. One of the things they will focus on is recognizing the natural communities on this particular site. So we have the wetland complex over here. We have, um, historically, this would be an oak savanna landscape. And then we also have a really great example of a sand prairie right at the end. Today, the volunteer group will be working to remove invasive trees and brush from a swath of native oak savanna that traverses a long hillside. The property is one of the Driftless Area Land Conservancy's five ambassador properties. These are properties that they own. Zach says these properties each represent a high-quality, functioning natural area within the Driftless region of the state. But each one of these ambassador properties kind of uh, tells its like a its own unique, uniquely inspiring story. Um, so uh, it's just a lot of fun to actually get out and work in these areas. It's super rewarding, and some of our volunteers will tell you, you know, it's not the easiest thing in the world, but you get to see that immediate change happen on the landscape, and that's really nice. You know, you get to come out here and save a few oaks, and it's a pretty cool feeling. As Zach and I walk toward the site with volunteers, site steward Philip Santa drives ahead of us hauling the chainsaws and other equipment in his pickup truck. Once we arrive, he explains the basics of the work today. We're clearing brush, which is, so this, this all used to be uh, open savanna. If you look at the 1937 aerial photos, this is all open except for like, in this whole slope here, maybe 10 to 12 big bur oak trees, and so, which are, some of them are still alive. Some of them have died because they don't have enough light. 
so step one in restoring this to oak savanna is getting all this brush out of here. That includes both invasive species and those junky, fast-growing trees that Zach mentioned earlier, which crowd out the open grasslands and savanna. We're cutting down, we're getting rid of woody stuff. <laughs> Easier to burn it as you go. Plus on a day like today, it's nice to have fires around. But it's pretty hard to start a fire right now. That's why I'm going to go see if I can get this one going. As Phil moves out to get the fires going, I chat with volunteer Laura Stevenson about her work here. And someone falls victim to the tangle of that brush. Just come out and help drag brush, cut brush. We, uh, sometimes we'll switch off and uh, when it's not snowing or raining, you can spray the leftover stumps with a little bit of, uh, you know, Roundup or something to uh, keep it from coming back next year. Um, we've done a lot of uh, just uh, invasive weed pulling too, and the, some of the like Japanese parsley, for example, and other things. So you get to learn a lot about what these invasives look like, garlic mustard. There you go. She's down. We'll check in on our work group a bit later. For now, let's find out more about the Driftless Area and the organization that works to preserve natural areas in the region. Well, our mission is to um, protect and enhance the scenic, natural, and agricultural health and beauty of the natural and agricultural landscapes of the Driftless Area of this part of Wisconsin. And we do that through land protection and land restoration and to connect people to the land and to each other. That's Driftless Area Land Conservancy Executive Director Jen Filipiak. So I like to boil that down into like three pillars where I think of it as we want to care for the land, we want to protect the land, and we want to connect with the land and with, with each other. Like the other 40 or so land trusts in the state, the Driftless Area Land Conservancy is a nonprofit organization that works within their community to permanently conserve land. The organization was started in 2000. At that time, there were no other land trusts in the Driftless area doing conservation easements. And there were landowners that were familiar with conservation easements because at that time, Mississippi Valley Conservancy existed, Groundswell existed. It was called the Natural Heritage Land Trust, I believe at that time in Dane County. There were other land trusts around the state, but none right here. And so landowners in this area were going to Groundswell, Mississippi Valley saying, hey, I wanna protect my land too. And and they were like, well, I don't know if we can handle expanding into this area. So, And then there's another organization that's kind of a coalition, like supporting, um, energizing <laughs> organization around all of us. Um, it's like the Gathering Waters Coalition for Land Trusts. And um, they also were in existence and were like, yeah, there's kind of a donut hole. <laughs> and so, so it was, you know, ecologists and other land trusts that formed us. At first, they focused on conservation easements because that's what the community wanted. A conservation easement allows a private landowner to permanently protect their land from development while maintaining ownership of the land. They give up their right to do certain things on the land to protect the conservation values. Um, I have another little saying I like to say is, <laughs> conservation easements protect your land from development but not from neglect. So the idea is that a landowner says, boy, I've been on this land forever, it's really special, I know it has very high conservation value, I sure wanna make sure it continues to grow trees and prairie and maybe crops, maybe hay, um, but not houses. And it's a negotiation between two parties, the landowner who wants to protect their land 
and the land trust. Because the land trust is saying, well, our mission is to do this. So is protecting your land going to help us with our mission? So it needs to meet our goals and it also needs to meet the landowner's goals. And if a conservation easement is the right tool, then we move forward with that easement. The land stays in private ownership. It's still on the tax roll. Um, we don't own it and we don't manage it. The landowner is still responsible. It's They still own it. It's still their land. Um, they can sell it. You know, they can leave it to heirs. If they sell it, the easement stays with the land. So that's the beauty of easements too, is they're permanent. And Driftless Area Land Conservancy, the holder of the easement, we stay with the land forever too, no matter who the landowner is. Jen says they have a legal obligation to monitor all easement holdings at least once a year, at the very minimum. But we do so much more than that. We really think of it as a partnership between the landowner and and us. We can connect the landowners to financial and technical resources to help them manage their land. And... The annual monitoring visits usually turn out to be wonderful conversations. I just monitored an easement last month and the landowner said, I saw these new plants. Are they good? Are they invasive? Why are they showing up? So you have this organization that, that specifies in this stuff always there with you to have ideas, bounce ideas off each other. The Driftless Area Land Conservancy holds about 50 such conservation easements, which permanently protect around 7,000 acres. Along with their ambassador properties, including the Wild Oaks Preserve, this comes to a little over 8,000 acres of land permanently protected. Efforts to make more land publicly accessible in the Driftless is an important goal of the Conservancy. But what exactly is the Driftless area, and why is it geologically significant? To answer that question, we have to go back millions of years. Yeah, so, you know, we talk about ice ages in the past, and sort of the first starting place is that we live in a unique time during the overall Earth's history that there are glaciers at all. Through most of the Earth's history, there haven't been any glaciers on the landscape. That's Eric Carson. He's a geologist with the Wisconsin Geological and Natural History Survey and a professor at UW-Madison. Uh, and during the last two and a half million years is one of the few time periods where there have been cycles of glaciers growing and shrinking on the landscape. So over the past two and a half million years, we've had maybe as many as four or five dozen of these cycles of temperatures cooling and then warming and cooling and warming cyclically. Eric says, from a geologic history standpoint, the Driftless Area is a portion of the upper Midwest that, through all these cycles... There's no evidence that it was ever covered by ice. All the surrounding territories were uh, in all the cardinal directions, but this area remained ice-free at all times. The most recent was the Wisconsin glaciation, about two and a half million years ago, and before that, the Illinoisan. And then there's a whole string of them that existed that occurred during the probably two million years before then. Uh, when we use this terminology, we kind of lump all of them together as pre-Illinoisan glaciations. And none of these glaciations covered what we now call the driftless area. But why do we call it that? What is drift, anyway? Drift is the term that glacial geologists used back in, back in the 19th century for glacial sediment. Um, it refers to material that was drifted in originally by some unknown uh, process, because the, the term was coined back during the time when geologists were just coming to reckon with the idea that large ice sheets once covered large portions of the earth. So this would have been back in the mid to late 19th century. And the original publications that 
to find the driftless area and recognized it as an area that was never covered by glaciation. Those were published in 1885, uh, and the first one was co-authored by T.C. Chamberlain, one of the famous Wisconsin grandfathers of geology. The drift formed a blanket that still covers all pre-existing geography in areas where the glaciers advanced. And what we see are uh, throughout this region, throughout not just the Driftless area, but southeastern Wisconsin, northern Illinois, um, eastern Iowa and Minnesota, the, the, the foundational bedrock geology is nearly flat-lying layers of sedimentary rocks that over millions of years, rivers have carved deep networks down into them. And in the Driftless area, uh, those are still exposed at the surface, and so it's that deep river network uh, that we see, uh, the Cooley country along the Mississippi River, the Kickapoo River that's just carved so deeply, the Wisconsin River and Mississippi River with their deep gorges. Uh, those are what we think of as the Driftless area. All the surrounding areas have the same bedrock geometry, same bedrock topography. It's just been buried by glacial sediment. While there's not glacial drift covering the area, Eric says there is material that reflects the glacial cycles. We do see sediment that reflects the the, the glacial cycles. Um, there's windblown silt that covers the upland surfaces across the, the entire driftless area. And this was derived during the peak of the Wisconsin glaciation. It was silt that was being carried away from the glaciers down the Mississippi River and then picked up in the wind and blown downwind to the east. And so when you're in western Crawford County or, or Vernon County or Grant County and you're up on the highest points on the landscape, that, that silt can be 20 or 30 feet thick. Um, and then as you travel east, it thins out until by the time you get here to Madison, there's places where you can see that it's only a foot or two thick. Uh, but that, that sediment, really well sorted, really um, uniform silt. You know, it's the reason that agriculture is so prevalent in the, in the Driftless area, and it certainly feeds into some of the native communities of plants. Back at the Wild Oaks Preserve, Zach and Phil are busy clearing brush and branches with chainsaws, while a truly merry donut-fueled band of volunteers pulls the downed wood into burn piles. I grab a chance to catch up with Phil, who's not only site steward for the Wild Oaks Preserve, he was instrumental in the acquisition of the property. I grew up near here in, in the countryside, and um, my whole adult life I've been wanting to get back to the country, you know, move, move back out. And, and then over the years I became more aware of the ecology here, and I've, I grew up on what I now know as native prairie, actually, prairie remnants. Um, in the town of Vermont and so um, you know for years I've been planning and thinking of like getting some land and my first thought was I'm gonna buy some land do rest you know do like prairie and savannah restoration and live there and then when I pass away I'll donate it to the Nature Conservancy. The Nature Conservancy ended up referring Phil to the Driftless Area Land Conservancy. So I called um, Jen Filipiak, who was brand new as the executive director, and told her my idea, and, you know, she was, like, really uh, open to it, you know, I, I, we joke about it now because she probably thought I was crazy at first, um, and we started discussing, like, different 
options. You know, I could do the conservation easement. There's a life lease thing that you can set up. But at that time, he still had not found the right piece of land. That's kind of unusual. Usually people have the land and then they go to the land trust. But this was like, no, I want, I want to find the land and I want to find land that has ecological value. And then the more that I was talking with them, I was like, well, actually, you know, they could, we can work on this together. Ultimately, Phil teamed up with a good friend, and together they raised money for the purchase of 350 acres of land in 2020. They donated 310 of those acres, the Wild Oaks Preserve, to the Driftless Area Land Conservancy. It will be restored, preserved, and publicly accessible. For Phil, having the land public was part of the motivation. It's a, it's a, it's a useful piece of knowledge that wasn't obvious to me, um, which is, you know, because, again, I, I, I've spent years taking young adults on wilderness expeditions out west in Alaska. So, I've, you know, and out, you look at a map of public land, and out west there's tons of it, you know. And, I mean, would be awesome if there was more, but, like, compared to here, there's lots of different preserved land and then on the east coast there's a fair amount as well but in the midwest there's actually very little and that is a consequence of of timing the history of when the settlers showed up here as well as geography so the the land out west you know some of it is mountainous and so it's pretty natural easy to preserve because it's hard for people to really do anything else with it but also by then right by the time the united states was expanding into that area there was some there was beginning to be awareness of like the value and importance of saving land with the teddy roosevelt and the national parks and all that um so you had a lot of a lot of land got preserved and then on the east coast and the eastern quarter of the country, again, you have a lot of mountains and a lot of forest and a lot of land that's not good for farming, you know, because um, it's sloped and it, it, the soil and there's a lot of reasons. So, you, again, you have a lot of, you know, federal and state preserved land. But here you had the, 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 the white settlers showed up in the middle to late 1800s, so there was no concept of saving land. You know, they had a very different idea of nature. And it's very productive agricultural land. So basically, everything that they could, they tilled it. Phil says the vision of Wild Oaks Preserve is to provide accessible trails for folks to hike, bike, and cross-country ski while providing for productive agriculture and conservation of natural ecosystems. Creating a space where all feel welcome is important. In that way, the Wild Oaks Preserve meets the Conservancy's goal to provide access to more public land in the region. It's a goal they are also pursuing through another project currently underway, the Driftless Trail. Here's Jen again. You know, Wisconsin's often thought of as this great place to go on vacation and have outdoor recreation and everything else. And But we don't have a lot of public land in southern Wisconsin. All of our public land's in northern Wisconsin. <laughs> and so if you only look at the Driftless area, if you only look at the southwest corner of, of Wisconsin, it's 97% privately owned. So if you're wanting to go hunting, if you're, well, you can go fishing, you can wade the streams. <laughs> but, um, you know, if you're wanting to go hunting, fishing, hiking, backpacking, you know, all that good stuff, um, or just taking a walk in the woods, you know, um, there's not a lot of access points to enjoy the Driftless area because it's all privately owned. 
we have Governor Dodge State Park, which is a huge, one of the biggest state parks in the state, in the Driftless area, and we have different state natural areas and stuff, but we don't, but not a lot of public land. So the idea is thinking of how much pressure the parks got during the pandemic, um, how much people really needed to get outside and just connect to nature, even if they didn't think about it that way. It was a very healing practice. So just this idea that nature is good for us and we should all have a way to access it and be able to take that deep breath and, and calm ourselves down. Um, so we started to think, yeah, how do you do that in a place where there's mostly privately owned lands? And, um, and then when you think about climate change, um, the thing with um, being climate resilient is as the climate changes, can the species, can the plants and animals adapt to that change? Do they have enough space to move up to a higher altitude, for example, or to move to lower altitudes, or to move to wetter places, or to move to drier places? Jen says that the more corridors we have for animals and plants to safely move through, the more ability they're going to have to adapt to climate change. So if you think of a remnant prairie, this is a prairie that's never been plowed. It's always had the same, and you can't recreate that. That is nature over millennia evolving into a particular system. Our oak savannas are um, another system that have evolved over millennia, and we still have remnants of those oak systems. If those remnants can be protected and development between them mitigated, now you can think of them as like biodiversity banks. And though that genetic, the gene flow can move too. So this is a little more esoteric because, you know, we're not talking about critters walking, but yeah, genes flowing, seeds flying, pollinator, you know, birds flying and pooping plants somewhere else. Um, so Driftless Trail, <laughs> back to the Driftless Trail. The Driftless Trail is planned as a publicly accessible connection between Tower Hill State Park, Governor Dodge State Park, and Blue Mound State Park. It will also create a corridor for land conservation and climate resiliency, a corridor that can never be developed. The idea is to have a footpath that goes through private lands, just a corridor. Um, it'd be about 50 miles if we are successful connecting the state parks. Indeed, three segments of the Driftless Trail are already open, including the Welsh Hill Trail, a two-mile loop on the Taliesin property near Spring Green. And they continue to work with area landowners to secure the rights to create and maintain the trail. The other really neat thing is that the people who live here and own land here um, really, really, I, I, don't, I don't think this is, I think a lot, <laughs> I don't know that this is unique to the Driftless area, but they seem to really appreciate what they have and how special this place is. And they want to share it. So how can they share it kind of safely with the public? You know, they don't want to give up all the rights, right? But they, yeah. Would you be willing to put a little trail through the back part of your property and let people hike through? Many, many landowners are very happy to do that because they do want to share their land. So the Driftless Trail is a conservation easement that is a trail corridor. And now in this conservation easement, still owned by the private landowner, still on the tax roll, <laughs> you know, but we, the private landowner is giving us permanent access to build, manage, and maintain a trail. And they're giving um, the public permanent access to walk the trail. So those are kind of the rights, for example, they're giving up with that easement. And then we'll hold the easement and we'll defend those rights. So it's kind of, it meets all parts of our mission. You know, we're trying to protect the biodiversity, the beauty of the landscape. We're trying to connect people to the land and we're trying to respond to climate change. At the worksite, 
Most of the cutting has finished for the day. Zach has put down his chainsaw, so I ask him about next steps and how prescribed burns might be used at the site. There's a little bit of rhyme and reason as to the seasonality of the prescribed burns. So um, certain burns, uh, burn seasons are going to have a better impact on um, forbs. Other burn seasons are going to have a better impact on grasses. Some burn seasons are just going to ha kind of have that more immediate impact on top killing your shrubs. So if you were to do like a late season ball, uh, fern, or sorry, fall burn, as all of the plants are starting to senesce, um, that kind of extra stress of the fire kind of pulling through the system is going to have a heavier kill on some of these invasive shrubs. As well. So uh, most of the, the burns that we're doing are, it's usually pretty spring heavy. You know, we kind of come through. It does a really good job of kind of um, reducing that thatch level, but also not having necessarily like as negative of an impact on some of the more desirable species that we're bringing up. So really the answer is we're going to burn as much as we possibly can. Um, understanding the uh, site that you're actually working in and um, the conditions that you know um, are, are prevalent on that particular site is really key to when you're going to initiate that prescribed burn. As we're talking, volunteer Jason Neaton brings Zach a small sprig of native plant indicative of an oak savanna. This is basically what we're looking for as we start to trudge around these systems. You know, it's easy enough, and sometimes we forget to look up, but it's easy enough to just look up and see those big, beautiful, mature oaks. That kind of gives us an indication of what we're actually looking for. And then you kind of highlight some of the native shrubs and the uh, native grasses that we have. So this is bottle brush grass. So if you're kind of walking through an area of woods and you're like, yeah, there, there were probably some big, beautiful oaks in through here at one point. This probably was an oak savanna. Um, if you start to find things like this, it's a really good example of an oak savanna habitat and a good indication that you should probably start doing some restoration there. The day's work is winding down, and Phil and Zach are loading gear back into the pickup. Miraculously, there are still a couple donuts left. Zach and Phil told me that without this group of dedicated volunteers, they'd be standing around scratching their heads trying to figure out how all the work would get done. So to Doreen Deesh, Richard Erland, Jason Neaton, Al Matano, Scott Mills, Martha Pings, and Laura Stevenson, thanks for welcoming me that day. Restoration of the Wild Oak Preserve continues the first and third Saturdays of the month. You can find out more about the Driftless Area Land Conservancy at driftlessconservancy.org. Ooh, boy, that fire's hot, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like I said, I think one time I was there, my beard was burning, and they were like, Dude, you, know me. <laughs> you really were on fire. I, I really was. <laughs> you have been listening to the Perpetual Notion Machine on WORT 89.9 FM, Madison, Wisconsin. I'm your host, Katherine Garvins. A link to this program can be found on the WORT website at wartfm.org. Up next is Radio Literature with Melvin Hinton. Thanks for listening, and have a great evening. My name is Charlie Rasmussen, and I am the president and instrumental director at Just Bach. We have an exciting concert on November 15th at noon at Luther Memorial Church, featuring harpsichordist Sean Cleave, one of Madison's newest additions to the early music scene. Sean will be performing a solo harpsichord recital featuring J.S. Bach's monumental English suite in E minor. This symphonic length work is a showcase of Bach at his most improvisatory and demanding at the keyboard. 
showing off everything that the harpsichordist of the day was expected to do at the instrument. An audience sing-along chorale will end the program. We have an exciting concert on November 15th at noon at Luther Memorial Church. To learn more, go to justbach.org. Thanks to WORT 89.9 FM Madison for supporting local live classical music. Welcome to Radio Literature, Madison's weekly look at poetry, fiction, nonfiction, theater, and experimental writing for readers of all ages. Settle in for a half hour of conversation on radio literature. Here's your host, Melvin Hinton. Because it's 7.30, you're listening to Radio Literature on WORT 89.9 FM out of Madison, Wisconsin, and WORTFM.org. I'm your host for this evening, Jason Compton. Melvin Hinton is away this week. The cultural critic Ian Bogost of the Washington University in St. Louis, I believe, recently said that Talking about your uh, AI-generated images, the things that come out of Dolly and uh, uh, Midjourney and things like that, is, is a lot like, or showing them rather, is a lot like talking about your dreams. It tends not to be that interesting to people. And in, in a similar vein, I think it's probably not all that interesting to hear about plans that didn't come together, but I, I want to share because I thought it was clever. My plan for the evening, my original plan, was to try to get representatives of both of the productions of the Twelfth Night musical by Shana Taub that are going on right now, opening more or less as we speak. There's a production uh, at uh, the University of Wisconsin-Madison. There's a production by Stoughton Village Players. My clever plan was to invite uh, members of both of those productions here to talk about how in the world something like this happens, that uh, a, a relatively new musical ends up being produced uh, you know, 15, 20 miles down the road from one another. But both of those productions are opening this evening, and or they saw through my clever scheme and they, they opted out. So I do have some uh, excellent guests in the studio tonight, but wanted to share that scheme, even though I was not able to bring it to fruition. Joining me in the studio uh, this evening, uh, off to my uh, northeast side, again, another really interesting thing to hear about, uh, where she's sitting at the table. Uh, she's been a guest on the program before. Michelle Sawyer, welcome back to Radio Literature. Thank you so much for having me again, even if I wasn't first choice. Well, none of us were first choice, so I felt we're all in the we're all in the same boat here as uh, as substitute uh, substitute product of substitute product. Uh, but Michelle, uh, we were talking a little bit 